0: Let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 19, Luke 19 verses 11 to 27 is where we'll be this morning. I hate to say it on Daylight Savings Day, but we're going to have to think hard this morning, so hopefully you're awake. Uh, If not, there may be more coffee, I don't know but you might want to get a refill. Um, but we're going to have to think hard. Jesus is teaching us some difficult things this morning, but um, I pray that that uh, they'll be clear and that they will challenge and change us. So Luke 19, and we'll be in verses 11 through 27. Maybe you know this saying, uh, when the cat's away, you know the second part, of the, the mice will play. Yeah, that's so... The, the idea is that, of course, that when the cat's around, the, the mice aren't because the cat would like to eat them and catch them. Uh, but when the cat's away, I mean, the mice can do whatever they want. It's it's free reign. Uh, this is a principle that we all learned in, in school, probably, when the teacher said, I'm going to step out of the room for a moment, please do your work, and the cat left the room and... You know, those there were some that were diligent. I know some of you were diligent, and I know some of you were not diligent. Um, and and Pastor Henry laughed hard at that. I'm assuming that he's one that was not. <laughs> or maybe you know this now in your workplace. There's someone that man they work hard when the boss is around, and when the boss leaves, it's it's sort of nap time, right? You know, um, when the when the cat's away, the mice will play. Uh, in all of these things, the the absence of the cat, whoever the the cat is reveals what the mice are really like, right? Um, in our passage today we're gonna to find a story, a parable, that Jesus tells about a king and that king's subjects and that king's servants and the absence of the king and then the, the return of the king teach us something about those people and they teach us something about ourselves. How we live while we wait for the return of King Jesus. Because in in some sense, Jesus is absent. Yes, he is always with us, but there is a sense in which he is not here, present in this world. And the absence of the king reveals what we think of him and his rule over us. I think that's the big thing that Jesus is telling us. The absence of the king reveals what we think of him and his rule over us. The absence of the king reveals what we think of him and his rule over us. This this theme in Luke that of Jesus as as Lord or as King he he keeps bringing out this 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 idea of Jesus as as Lord and and King. And here again we're confronted with this reality that we've been talking about often that the that that to follow Christ the call of Christ on our lives is a call to complete commitment. That's what he's called us to. That to say we're followers of Jesus means that he alone calls the shots in our lives. He, he is king. He's the primary person in our lives, and we live with the goal of, of pleasing him. But Jesus is a, a master. He's a lord. He's, he's a, a king who is always with us, but also in many ways, as we've said, is, is, is absent from us. And we are waiting. We're in this period of time where we're waiting for his return. And the way that we serve him now, the way that we live and act now reveals what we think about him. And reveals what we think about his his rule over us it's this concept of of him as, as king it's going to determine how we serve him or even if we will serve him at all this is a hard thing to think about Jesus as king over us sometimes we, we struggle to be committed to him fully to recognize that he is the ruler and the, the the supreme power in our lives the one that should call all the shots that's that's difficult for us or we get tired you get tired of of, of serving all the time or maybe there's some here that you have no desire at all to submit to Jesus. You don't want him to be your king at all. I think we're going to see clearly today what the cost of the being faithful, what the, what the what the reward of faithfulness is and what the cost of of not serving Jesus as king is. So let's look at this uh, parable in Luke 19. and I'll start reading in verse 11. As they heard these things, these things would be referring to Zacchaeus. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him. And sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your minna has made ten minutes more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your minna has made five minutes. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your minna, which I kept, laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the minute from him and give it to the one who has the ten minutes. And they said, Lord, he has ten minutes. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. I told you we to have to think hard this morning. Remember, the absence of the king reveals what we think of him and his rule over us. Jesus, again, before he tells this parable, um, Luke pulls out why Jesus is telling this parable. He did that at the beginning, the two in Luke 18. You remember he tells us why the parable is being told. And here he, he tells us why, though we might not immediately understand it. He says he told them this parable in verse 11 because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So Luke says that the reason Jesus tells this parable is that he and his followers were near Jerusalem. If they're in Jericho still, they're about 17 miles from Jerusalem. And because they're near Jerusalem, his followers assume that, that the kingdom is going to appear immediately. So there was this assumption that Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem was going to mark the, the full and the final messianic rule of Christ on earth, that he's going to be enthroned as king. He's going to dethrone all the Roman rulers and he's going to rise to the top and he's going to rule over everyone. That would probably seem to be even more the case when they actually arrive in Jerusalem because the next section, what we'll look at next week, is the triumphal entry. This is going to really look like Jesus is coming to reign fully and finally as palm branches are, are pulled down and there's shouts of Hosanna in the streets. And so Jesus, knowing that this is going to happen and knowing the thoughts of those that are with him, wants to make it clear about what actually is going to happen. So he tells this parable that while the kingdom, to, to show that while the kingdom has broken into the world in part, it is not fully here and will not be fully here for a period of time. So this is something you remember that the disciples continually to continue to wrestle with. So Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to be mocked and beaten and I'm going to die. That's totally confusing to them. Why? Because they assume that when Jesus goes to Jerusalem, the kingdom's going to come. So it's in light of this confusion that Jesus tells this parable. That's why he's telling the parable. So let's consider the parable sort of in, in broad general terms, because it's pretty foreign to us. As we look at it, we see a situation described that's, that's probably virtually unknown to us, but would, would have been very very familiar to the people in Jesus' day. It's the story of this man who is of noble birth. So he's in a, pow, a family of power and, and influence. And he is heading to a distant country to be made king and come back and rule over this area. So there's a a, a group, a, a, a nation that's ruling over an area, and he's going to go be made king and come back to this specific area to rule as king. This made total sense to everyone there because that's what Herod and Herod's son Archelaus would have done. They would have gone to Rome. And they went to Rome, and they would have been enthroned as king of a certain area, maybe Judea. And then they would come back, and they would rule with the power of Rome in that place. So they're going away, and they're coming back. And it makes total sense, too, that this nobleman, in his absence, would put some people in charge of his estate until he returns to make sure that things are going well so that when he returns, he can, in fact, reward them. He's coming back as a king. And so he's going to have opportunity for, for people to rise in power that he's going to need to help him. And so he wants to, in a sense, test them. So one group that's talked about here are the ten servants. And they're each given one minna, which is about a hundred drachmas, which means absolutely nothing to any of us, right? Uh, it's about three months' salary. It doesn't really matter exactly how much it was, but it was a significant amount of money, but not a ton of money necessarily. But the point of the money is, is that it's a test. We've seen this throughout Luke, that that money is a test. It shows something about us. And so how are they going to use this money? It's going to reveal something about them. So this nobleman gives them money to test them to see if they will be faithful with what they have. Now, in addition to these ten servants, we also see in verse 14 that there are some citizens the citizens of this soon to be acquired kingdom. And in verse 14, we're told that some of these citizens hated this man. That's the word that's used. They hated him. They hate him so much that in fact they send a delegation, they send a group of people to follow him to where he's going to be enthroned to say to the people that are that are giving him this kingship, we don't want this guy to reign over us. Now this too was totally familiar to them because Archelaus, Herod the Great's son, went from Judea, from that area, and was going to reign in that area after his father. He went to Rome, and the Jewish people sent a delegation to Rome to say, Archelaus is ruthless. We don't like him at all, and we don't want him to reign over us. And in fact, Archelaus was never named king. He was given the power, but he was never given the title, because he truly was a ruthless man. And so this is... Totally familiar to his listeners. In fact, they're in Jericho, and in Jericho, Archelaus had a huge palace. And so they knew exactly what was going on here. It may be foreign to us, but it made sense to them. So so then we see the rest of this parable, that what happens is with these, these two groups, the servants and the citizens, and the nobleman returns as a newly crowned king. And we see what happens um, to them, whether they are rewarded or, or punished. So that's the parable in general. Hopefully that makes a little more sense as we as we think about it. But let's pause and think about what Jesus is teaching his his hearers, what he's teaching us through this. Remember why he's telling it, because they were near Jerusalem and because they assumed that the kingdom was going to be established immediately. Uh, it becomes apparent as we study the parable, and I remember a parable is a what people would say, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So there's something deeper going on here. It becomes apparent then that that this nobleman is in fact a reference to Jesus himself. So Jesus is this nobleman who's going to a country and will come back as king. And it's a reference, in fact, to his ascension. To the fact that Jesus is going to leave for some time, and then he will return and fully establish his kingdom. The ascension is him going away into heaven, and then he will come back to fully reign here on earth. But, but that he's leaving, he's going to a distant country. And there's this idea of distant country. That means there's going to be a period of time of, of waiting. But when he returns, he will fully and finally set up his kingdom. The rest of scripture tells us that no one knows when that's going to be. That it's, it's uncertain. We don't know when that time is going to be. I was talking to Carolyn this morning and she reminded me it's, it's kind of like when you're going to have a baby, like Andrea is. And you don't know when it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And, and there are signs that about when it's going to happen, but you don't know exactly when it's going to happen. It will come suddenly, but it will come. And Jesus is going to return, and there's this period of, of waiting. Where you don't know when it's going to happen, but it will happen. I, I think that there's something here that we need to hear as well. That, that we often, we look at the disciples and say, oh, they thought the kingdom was going to come in fullness now, but they didn't realize it was going to be later. But I think sometimes we have that same sort of mentality. That, that, we need to be reminded that the kingdom is not fully here now. We can get confused as as followers of Jesus into thinking that everything is supposed to go on as if Jesus is king in this world, as if he's fully wielding his His power now. There is power. But there's also suffering and, and pain. There are things that we have to deal with. We think that those things will be gone. No suffering, no pain, no lines at the grocery store, You know, no car troubles at inconvenient times. Everything's going to go right because... I'm a child of the King, and and He is is ruling. But in actuality, it's it's hard that there, that life is is difficult in part because the kingdom is not fully here. And if we think the full the kingdom is fully here, then we're going to be very frustrated throughout our lives. This is a great term that theologians use called an overrealized eschatology. Overrealized eschatology. Eschatology refers to end times, our understanding about the end times, and our an overrealized one means we're assuming too much of the kingdom is here now, too much is settled now, and, and we're we're waiting. Heaven will be will happen when we are in heaven. There there is not much heaven on earth. There, there are opportunities of, of communion with Christ and joy in Christ. I don't want to take away from that, but there's more coming. Sickness and suffering and pain will be no more when the kingdom is Fully here, But for now, we wait. We're in this waiting period. We catch glimpses of that day and we rejoice, but we remember that we live in a world that's that's hostile to, to God. We live in a world that's broken by sin, and we're waiting for Christ to return. We not only need to know that there is this period of waiting, but also that in this period of waiting, this time where we are waiting is is crucial. We're in a waiting period, and this, this time period is so important. As we wait for the king to return. And, and the question is, how are we going to respond in this interim period? How do we follow Jesus? How do we walk as Christians as we wait for him to come back? What will our response to the absence of the king be? Because the absence of the king is going to reveal something about us. It's going to reveal what we think about the king. It's going to reveal what we think about his rule over us. And so Jesus gives us three broad responses to how people respond to the absence of the king. There's two found in this group of ten servants, and there's one found in the citizens of the kingdom. Let's think about the citizens' response first. So as we think about these rebellious citizens, this is what they tell us first, I think. Those who hate Jesus reject his rule and seek to overthrow him. And it's not just in the parable. That's a reality in our day. Those who hate Jesus reject his rule, and seek to overthrow him. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, there were those who hated him. They detested the way that he taught. They found something wrong with everything that he did. They they eventually set him up in a mock trial and demanded that he be crucified. He comes announcing the fact of, of his kingship, that he is the, the son of God. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And what is their response? Their response is the same of verse 14. They say, We don't want this man to reign over us. That's the response of every human heart apart from the grace of God. Sin is at its core rebellion. And in our sinful nature, what we say to God is, I don't want you to reign over me. I would like to be king of my own life. We we hate God. And that's not an overstatement. We hate God because God is light and we are filled with the darkness of sin, and as God comes with light, he exposes our darkness, and we don't like that. We, we want to be king, and so we say, I'm going to rule over myself. And we make a complete mess of things when we do that. But we don't care, because I'd rather make a mess of my life and be in charge than have someone else ruling over me. That's what our sinful, rebellious nature says. What happens to those who persist in that rebellion against King Jesus? What happens to those who hate him and seek to rule over themselves? Jesus tells us he saves it for the very end of this parable, but we can see it in verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. You have a category in your mind for a Jesus that will tell a story that says that. Bring these enemies of mine before me and slaughter them. I mean, it's it's clear, and there's no way around what exactly what he's saying. Jesus is full of mercy and grace, and he has come to seek and to save the lost. But there are times where he pulls back the curtain and reveals that if we continue to rebel against him, if we continue to sin, that when he comes, he will not come with joy. It will not bring joy in our hearts, but it will bring judgment. It will bring Slaughter. He he pulls back the curtain. He tells us the truth of Hebrews 9.27, that all will die and all will face judgment. And the punishment for rebellion against God, the punishment for rejection of Jesus as king, is eternal death in hell. The punishment enacted by this king, it looks harsh when we read it, but it is totally fair. The coming judgment is more than fair. Especially since in this waiting period, God has shown so much patience to us. My friend, if if you find yourself in this person that hates God, that rejects his rule, if you find yourself in that category now, then don't let the the reality of the judgment of God be something that hardens you against him. Because we are in this this waiting period. We're in this time where, where Jesus has not come back yet. And in this time, he is calling. He's still seeking to save the lost. He is still searching out, calling sinners to repentance. But there, there's coming a day, and we don't, we don't know when it is, when he will return. And, and he says when he comes back, he, 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 he will judge all people. He's not delaying his coming, though, because he's lazy. He's delaying his coming because he is full of love. Because he doesn't want anyone to perish, he wants everyone to come to repentance. So I would plead with you if you find yourself in a category that says, I hate Jesus, I reject his rule, I will rule over myself. Don't persist in that. Don't harden your heart against him, because because when he does return, when the King does come back, and the kingdom is fully here, he will rid the world of wickedness. And if he comes back and we are still found in rebellion, it, it's too late. No one who rejects his rule will be welcomed into his glorious kingdom. Not one. But today, I mean, today is a day of salvation, isn't it? Because Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and it's good for us that Jesus wasn't going to Jerusalem to set up the kingdom then and there. Jesus was going to Jerusalem, why? To accomplish salvation for all his people. His, his death and his resurrection are what make it possible for us to be welcomed in as members of his kingdom. His death was him being slaughtered, so that when he returns, we don't have to be slaughtered. He takes our place and he calls to us, and he, he, he says that he, he longs for us to come to him, to return to him. His resurrection gives us new life. His ascension promises that he, he will return. And his call is for us to turn, turn from our sin, to repent, and to come to him in faith. Those who hate Jesus, they will reject his rule, but he offers salvation to us. The absence of Jesus then reveals some of this hatred, and we see it in our world, people that hate Jesus and reject his rule. But there's a second group, and it's found in, in these first two servants. It's those who love and respect Jesus, accept his rule, and faithfully serve him. Those who love and respect Jesus, accept his rule, and faithfully serve him. So remember, he has the ten servants, and he gives each servant one minna. So he has ten minutes and minnas, and everyone gets, gets a minna. And they're charged to faithfully invest that minna until the king returns. They don't know when he's going to return, but he will return. And and they're given this charge. We assume, in fact, that these servants were followers of the king, at least apparent followers. And so in the parable, what they represent for us are are those who are disciples, or at least those who would claim to be disciples. Anyone who says that they are a follower of Jesus, this is who is represented here. There's a parallel to this passage you might know better. It's the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, where everyone's given a varying amount. Some are giving more than others. But in this account, everyone's given the same. Everyone gets, gets one. I think the emphasis then is, is not on the fact that some have been given more and some have been given less, but the fact that all have been given some. And so therefore the call is to faithfulness. If we are followers of Jesus, we all have been given something. We all must be faithful with what we've been given. So what do these minas refer to? This is a hard question, and one that I won't answer fully, probably. So, sorry if I disappoint you. Um, The minas could refer to the fact that we've all been given gifts by God. They they could be financial gifts or or physical health. They could be spiritual gifts, God-given abilities, talents, possessions, the gift of family, the gift of, of friends. But whatever we have is from God. And so then the question of the passage of the text becomes, how are we using these gifts until Jesus returns? Are we investing them rightly? The minna also could just be the gospel message itself, since everyone gets one, everyone gets that gospel message. Are we hoarding the gospel message just for me, or am I liberally sharing it with all, investing it, and in seeing others come to faith in Christ? I think it could just be a general understanding of that all that we have has been given by God. Are we being faithful? It could be some combination of these things. I think, though, the idea is we, we've been given something by God. We've been given the gospel. We've been given gifts and abilities. Are we using them for the furtherance of the gospel, for the spread of Christ's kingdom in this world? And I think this hinges, and whether or not we're going to do that, it hinges on what we think about Jesus. How do we understand who he is? Remember the, the group that hated him. Now we're talking about those that love and respect him. God changes hearts. Everyone's in that first group. But God can change our hearts to the place that we no longer hate him, but we in fact love him. We, we love him, we respect him, and we willingly submit to his rule. And as a small child, I, I'm sure I took a sip of my dad's black coffee and I hated it. And I made a, that face that my kids make when they try my black coffee. you know. And everyone laughed because it's funny. As a three-year-old, I, I hated that. But as a thirty-three year old, I love it. You know. I mean my tastes have changed. My loves have changed. My my six year old self thought girls were a waste of time and that they were full of cooties, right? My sixteen-year-old self just wanted to be around girls all the time, probably. You know. So so we change. Your heart changes. And God changes our hearts. He opens our eyes. We hate God apart from the the work of God salvation in our hearts, but He comes and He gives us a new heart, a heart of affection, a heart of of love. He opens our eyes to the ugliness of sin. We thought sin was so great. He shows us how ugly it is. And that which we love becomes disgusting. And that which we hated, the rule and the reign of Christ, becomes beautiful to us. It becomes something precious to us, something that we want to submit to. Jesus himself becomes the source of our joy. We, we love him. We, we revere him. We, we respect him. We don't, we don't reject him anymore. We willingly submit to him. We serve him out of this deep affection and love. That's what these, these servants were doing, these first two. The, the king returns and he finds these two servants. And they have been faithful because they love the king. They respect the king. They fear him rightly. And, and they saw the absence of, of the king was a call to action. The absence of the king wasn't time to goof off. The, the absence of the king was an opportunity to serve this master that they loved. He said, you need to do these things while I'm gone. And they said, we will do it because we love you. Because we, 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 we know that there is reward in doing what you've asked us to do. And the king comes and he is pleased. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. And he rewards them. gets rule over ten cities. Rule over five cities. What's the principle here? What, what does that mean for us? It's a simple reminder that I think we know, and it's, it's this, that, that our actions in the present will echo in the future. Our actions in the present will echo in the future. So what we do now has impact on our eternal state, on our standing before God. Now let's be clear. Are we saved by works? No. I heard it said this way. I was listening to Alistair Begg this week on this passage, and he said it in a unique way to me. He said, is anyone saved by works? Answer, no, we are saved by faith alone. But is anyone saved without works? The answer is no. Because we are his workmanship. We looked at that in Sunday school. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by works, but if we are saved, then, then works will naturally follow. And so these servants show forth that they truly love the King because they willingly do what he asks. They will willingly and joyfully invest all that they have and all that they are to see his kingdom increase. To, to see, it's his money. It's his minna. They're going to give it back to him anyways. It's not theirs. They're doing it for his glory and for his good, and we see that growing. and And that's what we as believers see that that if we love Christ, then we will invest our time and our energy, our things that he's given us, so that so that we will honor him in the future. And that's what's interesting. A second thing: so our actions in the present will echo in the future. Here's another thing to think about: that faithfulness now is rewarded with greater opportunity. To serve the king in the future. Isn't that interesting? That's what the reward is. So if we're faithful now, the reward is greater opportunity to serve the king in the future. What does he give them? He gave them one minute that they were responsible for. He comes back and what does he give them? Now you've got ten cities to be responsible for. It's not It's not an earthly possession. The gift in the kingdom is that we are entrusted with more to invest ourselves for the glory of God. He gives us, He counts us faithful. I think that that has to have some sort of bleed into the present reality. That our faithfulness now in what God has given us, we've all been giving something, and our faithfulness now means that He will give us responsibility over more, and more opportunity to glorify Him. I think most often our mentality is, I'd like to do my work now so that I don't have more work. I, I, don't, I don't want to have more responsibility. I want to be responsible for these things and be done with them. But in God's kingdom, the reward is, if you are faithful over this, I'll give you more so that you can bring me more glory. Because that's what our joy is. Our joy is not, is not in, in earthly treasure, but our joy is in serving our king. And the reward is that we're allowed to do more for him. That's how those who, who have joy, who love and respect this king, that's how they respond to his absence. So those who, those who hate Jesus, those who reject his rule, they, they seek to overthrow him, and in the end they're overthrown themselves. But those who, who love Christ, who respect him, they accept his rule and they faithfully serve with the result that they are exalted in God's kingdom. So what do we do with this third guy? What do you do with this, this third guy who has the minna and puts it in the handkerchief? Let me say this, and then we'll try to hash it out. This guy, I think, represents this group. Those who misunderstand Jesus, those who misunderstand Jesus, accept his rule only out of fear, and they are faithless. So those who misunderstand Jesus accept his rule only out of fear, And they are faithless. So this servant hides his men. He doesn't invest it. He doesn't leverage it for any good. He lets it sit in a handkerchief. Why? What's the reason he gives? Verse 21, that little word for, because, that's an important word whenever you're studying Scripture. For, the reason I did that, Master, is because I was afraid of you. Because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not. So I'd be scared too, I guess, in light of verse twenty-seven, right? That he's going to slaughter his enemies. What do you What do you do with that? He He says this guy's a hard and exacting man. He's ruthless. He's He's severe. He's always looking for ways to get gain for himself, even at the expense of others. The question is, is that true? What's wrong? What's What's going on with this guy? That That's what he thinks about this king. Is he blinded by pride? Does he think that he should be in charge? Does he always tell all the other servants, I'd be a much better master than this guy is? Is he confused by some sort of worldly wisdom that's surrounding him? You know, Everyone else is talking about how bad of a king he is. They're forming this uprising, and he's sort of being influenced by that a little bit. Yeah, maybe he is a little bit of a jerk. I don't know if I want to serve him. Is, is his assessment of the king right? I don't think so. Look at this king. What's he do? I mean, he takes, brings all his servant and he gives them all a minna and says, "Hey, be faithful with this." He, he distributes gifts, and then what does he do when when they are faithful with those gifts? He rewards people. He gives them ten cities. I mean, that that's a pretty good reward. That's a pretty good return for you know your three month salary and you multiply it, and then he gives. Okay, now you're in charge of of ten cities. I, I think that that this that that it's not the king is not as bad as this servant seems to think. But the king lets him be confused. He says, listen, okay, if that's really what you thought, then why didn't you do something with the minna that I gave you? If that was really what you thought, and, and he, it, I know the, the the ESV makes it as a question. you You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Like, okay, so you knew that? Then wouldn't you have invested it? So here's the thought I have that I'm still processing. I invite you to process it with me. It's this. That fear by itself is a terrible motivator. Fear by itself is a terrible motivator towards faithfulness to God, towards serving God. Because that's what this guy is. He is just scared of the king. He does not love the king, he does not respect the king. I mean, he speaks terrible about him maybe th- maybe you're motivated by fear for different things i mean does that does that have staying power we can only operate out of fear for for so long before we just get tired i'm just tired of operating out of out of fear imagine that you know you're as as a um as a parent that that's your main thing i just want my kids to be scared of me and that's how i want them to to obey it's easy to fall into that. that's not a very good motivator though what's that kid going to do when he grows up I mean, what if you had a, a, a relationship between a husband and wife, and it's motivated by fear? That, it doesn't last. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Any relationship, we, we get out of that kind of stuff. And this guy, just, he just says, I'm, I'm just scared of you. I, I don't know what's exactly going on in this guy's heart, but he's, he's fearful, he's prideful, he's, he's begrudging. And that fear doesn't lead him to do anything for the king. He's just, he's scared. He's a servant, in fact, in name only. The question that we ask from this text then is well, what happens to this guy? I mean we know what happens to the rebellious citizens they're slaughtered. we know what happens to the faithful servants they're they're rewarded what happens with this guy i don't know that that's a question that Jesus necessarily wants us to have the, a perfect answer to no, i I don't know that that's that's the point. I think rather the point is don't be like this guy <laughs> don't don't be this man don't don't be someone that don 't be a wicked servant that 's what he 's called. If he is saved in the end he 's saved as by by the skin of his teeth uh, and just by the grace of God he receives no reward. his Minna even goes to the guy that has ten because those that are faithful are given more to be faithful with because they can be trusted so so put these things together these two servants and let 's think about how we serve god because because the the way that we think about Who God is determines how we're going to act in this waiting period. If we, if we just operate out of fear, if we're just scared of who He is, we're scared of judgment. It it won't, it won't have lasting power in our lives. But, but these servants, they, they love this King. They not only love this King, but they respect Him. They realize he's coming back and that he's going to call them to account. And, and they hold that truth and, and therefore they're motivated to action. I, I think it's, will we accept the lordship of Christ in that way? With, with a joy, we, we want to serve you. We, we want to submit to your rule. Are we going to fulfill our responsibility as those that have been given all these gifts? Are we going to do it with, with joy and love for the king? Who who is Jesus? I mean, what do we think about who he is? Do, do we love him as a king? Do we respect him as a king? I, as I was thinking about this, I it kept coming. Um, to, you know, our our understanding of who Christ is can be warped in so many different ways, can't it? I mean, everyone talks about the judgment of God, and they, it's such a terrible thing. And so we start to think that way, maybe. We get prideful and we think we've got everything figured out. And we, we just wonder why we need Jesus to be ruling over us. And as I thought about this, I kept thinking about the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, with uh, Peter and and Susan and Edmund and Lucy, where they where they go and and and, and they're they're being introduced to this land of, of Narnia and they hear about this guy Aslan, and Aslan's the ruler, and they're they're with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. So these are beavers that talk. Okay, it's you know. Fantastical story. Anyways, um, here's the conversation that happens in between them. It says, Lewis writes, is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beast? Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just, or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. This is great, isn't it? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, this picture of who Jesus is, he's, he, he certainly isn't safe. He slaughters his enemies. He will come with judgment. He is not safe in any sense of the word. But he is good. And he's the king. Do, do we understand Jesus as king? He certainly isn't safe. He's someone that we should tremble before. Someone that we should revere and respect and fear. But yet, he is our friend. He is our, he is our brother. God is our father and, and he loves us. And we can't, we can't fall off on one side of his character or on the other. If, if we're just scared of him, we'll never serve him with joy. But, but if we just see him as, as friend, if, we, if, if he's just too soft for us, then we won't serve him either. We have to have this balance that he is not safe at all. But boy, is he good. He's the king. So now is the time. If we, if we understand who he is, that the, the encouragement is in this waiting period. Now is the time to be faithful. Now is the time to be faithful in our families now is the time to 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 share the gospel with our children to encourage our spouses now is the time in our workplaces to tell others because the day coming when when Jesus will return now is the time we don't know when he's coming now is the time to be faithful in our community to to go and to tell others the good news of Christ because he he will return now is the time to be faithful in our everyday lives from the grocery store to everything in between to be faithful. in in using what God has given us for His greater glory, for His kingdom. Because a day is coming. I mean, there is a day coming as sure as today came. There is a day coming when the Lion of the tribe of Judah, bigger and scarier than Aslan, he will return. And every single one of us will be held accountable. Everyone. And those who have hated him, those who have rejected him, those who have been faithful, he will be terrible to behold. But for those of us who love him, those of us who are filled with this mixture of awe and of of fear, of, of love and of joy, Uh, We will be filled with with this mix of emotions that, that we can't even understand at this moment. But until then, we are called to be faithful. We must be faithful now. And we serve Him. We serve Him as our Father and our friend. And we serve Him as our judge and as our King. Let's be faithful until He comes.